one hammer, striking one nail almost 502 years ago, changed the world forever. When Martin Luther posted his 95 Theses on the church door at Wittenberg, Germany, a spark was created that started the firestorm of what has become known as the Reformation. The gospel that had been hidden behind man-made religion all throughout the Middle Ages was brought out of the darkness and into the light to shine with clarity once again. And at the center of that gospel that was recovered is the glorious doctrine of justification. Now, justification is a big word, but it has a relatively easy meaning. It has to do with a person being acceptable in God's sight. And so this morning, I want to start off by asking you a question that I'd like you to answer in the quiet of your heart. That means not verbally. So here it is. As you think about your life over the past month, over the past year, over the past years, as you sit here today in Grace Church in Swansboro, North Carolina, or as you're listening in online, do you think that God looks at you and sees you as acceptable in His sight, and why or why not? And I'll give you about 10 seconds to answer that question. Well, thank you for doing that this morning. How you answer that question actually reveals whether or not the gospel is hidden to you like it was in the Middle Ages. Listen, if your answer included anything having to do with your performance, your moral attempts, your religious activities, your goodness, then I want to love you enough this morning and I want to care enough for your soul this morning to tell you that you do not understand the gospel or you're not trusting in that gospel. In fact, if your answer was anything other than, yes, I am acceptable in God's sight solely because of Jesus and his work on my behalf, then you are sitting in a very, very dangerous place this morning. And my goal today is to show you from this text that you are drinking in a deadly poison and to offer you the antidote, which is the pure gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, for those of you who are here who are trusting in that pure gospel, you're not off the hook. My goal is to warn you today from this text about the dangers of drifting away from the gospel, which, by the way, can happen so easily and oftentimes without us even realizing it. And so as we open up the book of Galatians this morning, we're going to be looking at a group of churches where some individuals had already begun to drink in this deadly poison. Uh, the book of Galatians was, was written by the Apostle Paul, to a group of churches that he had planted, most scholars think, either on his first or his second missionary journey in the region of Galatia, which would be in modern-day Turkey. Now, these churches were comprised primarily of non-Jewish believers. That is, they were Gentile believers uh, who had come under the influence of a group of false teachers uh, commonly referred to as the Judaizers. Now, the Judaizers' message was essentially this. In order for you to be acceptable to God, you must believe in Christ, and keep the ceremonial law of Moses. And so they would say things like this, unless you're circumcised, you are not acceptable in God's sight, and therefore you are not saved. 
that unless you keep the appointed feasts and festivals like the Passover, you are not acceptable in God's sight and therefore you're not saved. And so the Judaizers' message was this, that Christ is necessary for your salvation, but Christ is not sufficient for your salvation. Well, when Paul got word of this poisonous teaching, he picked up his pen to write arguably one of the most passionate letters in all of the New Testament. You see, the, the, the Galatians were in danger of abandoning the gospel, of abandoning Christ, and abandoning the salvation that was in him alone. And so love compelled Paul to write in no uncertain terms about the seriousness of what was at stake. And so if we were to boil down the big purpose of the book of Galatians, we would say it's this. It is a big, fat warning against legalism. What is legalism? Legalism is relying on something besides Jesus alone in order to be acceptable in God's sight. Relying on something besides Jesus alone in order to be acceptable before God. And so as we look at the first nine verses of Galatians this morning, the main point, the main thing I want you to take away from this message today is this. Cling to the gospel of salvation by grace alone because legalism is a deadly poison. So what does it mean that salvation is by grace alone? Well, it means that, that salvation is a gift that is to be received, not a reward that is to be earned. It means that human performance, moral effort, spiritual achievement, or re religious activity contributes absolutely nothing to the attaining or the maintaining of God's acceptance. It means that, that God accepts the vilest of sinners through faith in Jesus Christ through faith in Jesus Christ, in spite of themselves, in spite of themselves. Now, to guard against any misunderstanding this morning, there's two things I want to mention. First, I want to mention that when you hear me say that salvation is by grace alone, what I'm referring to there is that's just shorthand for me saying uh, what have become known as the solas of the Reformation, which means that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, and all of that comes to us through the scriptures alone. So keep that in mind when you hear me say salvation is by grace alone. Secondly, if at any point today you think that I am saying that obedience is not important, you have grossly misunderstood me. Obedience is like the fruit on a tree. The fruit is evidence that the tree is alive. And so obedience is evidence that a person has become spiritually alive. That is that they have been born again. They've experienced conversion. They've experienced regeneration. And so with those two qualifiers, let us look at the first five verses of this passage this morning, which is the greeting of Paul's letter. What I want you to see in these first five verses is that the gospel is the unchangeable message of salvation by grace alone. In verse one, we'll see that Paul establishes his God-given authority. He says this, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. See, apparently the false teachers were trying to convince the Galatian believers that Paul had received his authority and his message from mere men. And so the very first sentence of his letter, Paul corrects this false accusation by uh, identifying himself as an apostle. Now, an apostle means sent one. The apostles were a very unique a uh, small group of men during the first century who were invested with a unique authority to preach and to teach and to write on behalf of Jesus. And they were given power to perform miracles as a proof of that authority. Paul is saying and identifying himself as a man with this unique God-given authority. 
Paul then identifies how he acquired that authority. He says, it was not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. In other words, there was no congregational vote in a church like this that said, you know what, Paul, we think you'd make a great apostle. Let's vote you in. There was no existing apostle like the apostle Peter that said, hey, let me lay your, my hands on you, Paul, and you can become one of us. No, Paul is saying that this was a direct commissioning by the resurrected Jesus himself and God the Father. Next thing we see Paul doing, he identifies the supreme authority and power of the one in whom he received his authority from. He says, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Now, there is a huge difference from between receiving authority from, say, the Bear Creek Hunting Club and from receiving authority from the President of the United States. But there's an even bigger difference between receiving authority from a mere man like the President of the United States and receiving authority from God himself, the only being who has power and authority over death. That's what Paul's saying here. He's saying it's who raised him, that's Jesus, from the dead. Paul says in Romans 1 that the resurrection of Jesus was actually a declaration. It was a declaration that Jesus is the Son of God in power. What that means is that Jesus is the divine King who is enthroned at the right hand of the Father, who has all authority in heaven and on earth. And so Paul is saying, this divine King is the one who called me to be an apostle and who invested me with the authority that I have. Therefore, what I'm about to write to you is the capital T truth from God. And we would do well to pay attention to what we are about to hear as just that, the capital T truth from God. Verse 2, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you've perused through Paul's letters before, you know that this is a common construction that he uses, grace to you and peace. But if we understand the context of this letter to the Galatians, we see right here that this is already a dig against the Judaizers legalistic system of salvation by works. See, grace is this unmerited and undeserved favor from God towards guilty sinners, which results in us having peace with God, people having peace with God. How does that happen? How does this grace and peace come to us? Well, verse 4 tells us that it is through the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. Now, if you don't know what that means, hang with me for a little bit and you will. Verse 4, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Now, I want to press the pause button real quick to talk to you because I'm going to be spending a significant amount of time on this verse because in order for us to understand why legalism is such a deadly poison, we have to understand what it means that Jesus gave himself for our sins. So the reason I tell you that is because I don't want you to, to, to get restless and think because I'm spending so much time on this particular point that this is going to be some hour-long sermon. It's not, I promise you. But I do want you to, to pay attention and try to, to try, to, try to hang with me because I am going to spend a significant amount of time on this. So Jesus, Paul says this, that Jesus gave himself for our sins. What is sin? 1 John 3, 4 tells us, it says that sin is lawlessness. In other words, sin is the failure to keep God's law. It is the breaking of God's moral law, which is summarized in the Ten Commandments. 
as the Westminster Catechism it says, as well as some other catechism, catechisms state, it is any lack of conformity to or any transgression of the law of God. See, two of the greatest delusions that we as human beings have in regard to our own sinfulness is the pervasiveness of it, that means how bad it really is, as well as the seriousness of our sin in God's sight. But the scriptures make no bones about it, that we are uh, a people who are sinful through and through, that, that sin has corrupted every faculty of our being, that sin has corrupted our physical bodies, that's why we get sick and old and we die, that sin has corrupted our minds, that's why we suppress the truth about God. Sin has corrupted our desires, why we desire things that are sinful. Sin has corrupted our consciences. Scripture tells us that our consciences, uh, apart from God doing a work in us, have been seared. Sin has corrupted our will, that is that, is that choosing capacity within us. Why, that's why we choose things as we shouldn't. Now that doesn't mean we're absolutely as evil as we possibly could be, and that's by God's grace. But what it does mean is that, just as Jeremiah says, is that, that our hearts are sick, desperately sick. And that, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, that we are spiritually dead apart from God coming into our hearts and performing a spiritual resurrection, which he does, by the way, through the preaching of the gospel, which you'll hear today. Paul spends a significant amount of time, you may remember, in, in Romans, the first three chapters of Romans, talking about sin. And he goes into great detail to show how both Jews and non-Jews are both sinners by nature and underneath the condemnation of God. And then he says this in chapter 3, verses 9 through 12. He says that, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. You see, when the well is polluted, a.k.a. the heart, then every droplet of water that is drawn from that well is polluted. Paul says no one does good, not even one. Isaiah goes so far to say that even our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment in the sight of God, or filthy rags, some translations say. Apart from a saving relationship with Christ, what that means is that, that the best thing that you and I have ever done that we thought was so impressive in God's sight, even that was stained and saturated with sin. That means that even in that deed, we were breaking God's law at some point, whether that means in our thoughts, our words, the actual deed itself, in our motivation for doing it, or in the attitude, which is the manner in which we did that deed. Now, that is a very hard pill to swallow for a prideful human being who thinks he's good. But that's what God tells us. And he's been so gracious to give us his law, the Ten Commandments, in order to act as a mirror so that we can actually see what he sees. So for those of us who actually think that we look more like Cindy Crawford or George Clooney, we can actually look at the mirror and see, actually, we look a lot more like Freddy Krueger, if you know who that is. We're studying the law here at, uh, at, at Grace Church. Many of you are involved in that study that we do on, uh, in, during our times before the service. And I don't know about, actually I do know about this for most of you who are in that. It has rocked me to learn what actually keeping God's law requires of me. And so just to give you an example of that, the first commandment of the, first, of the Ten Commandments says this, you shall have no other gods before me. You know what it means to have no other gods before the one true living God? 
Well, let me quote from you from the uh, Westminster Longer Catechism on this. By the way, these answers in the, in the Longer Catechism are coming directly out of the Scriptures. You can look it up online, and it'll give you the Scripture references for where these points came from. So it says this, The duties required in the first commandment are the knowing and acknowledging of God to be the only true God and our God, and to worship and glorify Him accordingly. How? By thinking, meditating, remembering, highly esteeming, honoring, adoring, choosing, loving, desiring, fearing of Him, believing Him, trusting, hoping, delighting, rejoicing in Him, being zealous for Him, calling upon Him, giving all praise and thanks and yielding all obedience and submission to Him with the whole man, being careful in all things to please Him, and sorrowful when in anything He is offended, and walking humbly with Him. How you doing? I'm not doing so well. And that's the point. All of a sudden, the, the question is no longer, have I broken God's law? The question becomes, have I ever even kept God's law? The question we start saying to ourselves, just like in, in echoing Paul, I am the worst of sinners. See, if we're looking at the, the law of God rightly, it's going to show us to be as we really are. It's going to show us to be idolaters and blasphemers and liars and thieves and adulterers at heart and on and on. Sam gave, gave a, wherever Sam is, he's not in here now, but he gave a, a great illustration uh, of, of what this is like uh, a couple few weeks ago when he taught on the first commandment. And I'm going to tease it out just a little bit. But it's like this. We all know we have a problem. It's like we have a toothache and we think, you know what, I'm going to go to the dentist. He's going to tell me I have a cavity. And then after uh, he's going to fill it and I'm going to be on my way. But here's what happens when we actually look into God's law. It's like going to the dentist and he opens our mouths and he starts to examine inside of our mouths. And all of a sudden, a look of horror comes across his face. And he said, it is way worse than you ever thought. He said that every single one of your teeth is rotted to the core. He said that your jawbone is brittle and disintegrating because of osteoporosis. And your tongue and your gums are infiltrated with the worst cancer that there is, the most aggressive form of cancer that there is. You see, that's what the law of God is meant to do. It's meant to show us the pervasiveness of our sin, to show us how bad it really is so that we can see what God sees, so that we'll try, stop trying to save ourselves and so that we will run to the Savior, which is Jesus. Scriptures tell us that God has set a day when all accounts will be settled. That's called Judgment Day. What standard will our lives be examined by on Judgment Day? Acts 17.31 tells us. It says that he is, because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world by taking each person's own personal standard of morality and judging them by that standard. He, that He has set a day when He will judge the world by, by taking a person's good deeds and weighing uh, their bad deeds against that. No. He will judge the world by comparing one person to another person. No. It says that he, is, he will judge the world in righteousness. In righteousness. The standard which God will judge on that day is His perfect standard of righteousness which is found in the Ten Commandments. And so on that day, on the evidence table in God's courtroom, there is going to be every thought, 
every word, every deed, every attitude, every motivation in your entire life. And God is going to bring out His perfect standard of righteousness, the Ten Commandments. And He is going to render His verdict based on that standard. And everyone who falls under that standard is going to be found guilty in a massive way. And so what is the sentence for those who are guilty? Romans 6.23 tells us, it says, For the wages of sin is death. So just as a murderer has earned a wage by his murder, the electric chair, so a sinner has earned a wage by his sin, and that wage is death. What is death? Listen to what Revelation 21.8 tells us. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. You see, death is certainly what we see when we look into a coffin and see a cold and lifeless body, but that's not the fullness of it. Death is ultimately being cast into hell, being cast into the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. Hell is God's prison for lawbreakers. It is where the infinite wrath of God is unleashed against all evildoers. Now, I know I've spent a lot of time on sin this morning, but it is so fundamental to understand what it means that Jesus gave himself for our sins. You see, when the battered and bloodied body of Jesus hung on that cross almost 2,000 years ago, it wasn't the nails that held him there. It was the sins of his people from every nation and tribe and language. They had broken God's law in a massive way. And Jesus, in the greatest act of love in all of human history, was paying their fine. He was satisfying their death sentence. The scriptures tell us that from noon until three o'clock while Jesus was on the cross, that darkness came over the land. During that time, he was underneath the curse of God for his people. In a very real sense, what happened during that time is that Jesus experienced hell for his people where the infinite wrath of the Father, instead of being unleashed on His people in hell, was being unleashed on His own perfect Son on that cross. And when He finished paying that death sentence in full, He said, it is finished. He laid down His life, He was placed in a tomb, and on the third day He rose from the dead. Now since only God has power and authority over death, Jesus' resurrection was evidence, was proof that the Father had accepted His payment in full on behalf of His people. See, this is what it means that Jesus gave Himself for our sins. But how does what happened 2,000 years ago deliver us from the present evil age? Well, the present evil age is the present time until the second coming of Christ. It's an age that's marked by rebellion to God, where Everyone is underneath the condemnation of God because of their sin. And everyone is marching down this wide path that leads to destruction, that is to hell. The way that a person is delivered or rescued from this present evil age is not to go out and try to clean up your life and, and, and just be better. You'll only make it worse if you do that. But to fling yourself on God's offer of mercy in His Son by repenting and trusting in Christ. But what does it mean to repent? Repentance means it is, a, it is a change of heart from sin and self-centeredness 
towards God in a posture of submission. It is a revolution of the heart where one authority is abandoned and another authority is embraced. What does it mean to trust in Christ? It means to rely upon and rest upon Christ alone and His work 2,000 years ago as your sole hope to be acceptable before God. The instant that you repent and trust in Christ, you are fully and eternally acceptable in God's sight because the basis of God's acceptance is not your performance, but Christ's perfect performance on your behalf. You see, this is the heart of the gospel that was recovered in the Reformation. That God accepts the guilty sinner through faith in Christ by giving them what He requires as a gift. And so God will give us uh, this pardon of our sins through Christ's suffering and, and, and death on our behalf. And He credits us with a perfect righteousness that Christ Himself earned through His perfect, sinless, law-keeping life. See, this is justification. This is what it means to be acceptable in God's sight. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 3, 20 through 22. And I'll be quoting from the NIV on this. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Through the law, we become conscious that we're more like Freddy Krueger. But now, apart from the law... The righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. That's the Old Testament testifies. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. What that means is that your moral successes, your moral failures, your performance, your religious activities, your efforts, your works contribute absolutely nothing to attaining God's acceptance. If the basis was you, you would be condemned because no one is righteous. But by God's grace, the basis is Christ and His righteousness for all who trust in Him alone. See, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And as the end of verse 4 and verse 5 shows us it is all for the glory of God alone. Look what it says. Verse 4, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. You see, God's jaw-dropping mercy and the salvation of sinners cannot be traced to anything good that he found in us because there was no good to be found in us. As verse 4 makes clear, this was God the Father's sovereign will, His sovereign choice. This is sheer grace, unmerited and undeserved, which is why to Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. See, the Father deserves and the Son deserves and the Holy Spirit deserves uh, honor and unending praise that is glory for the salvation of poor sinners through the sacrifice of His perfect Son. And so right here in this first five verses of Galatians, we see that Paul has established that the gospel is the unchangeable message of salvation by grace alone. Now, in verses six through nine, he's going to point out, point us to this, that legalism is a rejection of the gospel and is thus a deadly poison. So remember what legalism is. It's relying on something besides Jesus alone in order to be acceptable before God. 
See, all man-made religion is a form of legalism. Let me just give you some examples of that. Catholicism relies on Christ plus the sacraments in order to be acceptable in God's sight. Jehovah's Witnesses rely on their works and submission to the Watchtower Society. Mormons rely on their obedience to an exhaustive list of man-made rules set by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Buddhists rely on their contemplative rituals to try to reach nirvana. Muslims rely on some combination of their adherence to the five pillars of Islam. Some charismatic Christians rely on their ability to speak in tongues. And Protestant liberals rely on love and tolerance to be acceptable to God. But as the letter to the Galatians make clear, makes clear for us, even legitimate Christians are in danger of drifting into legalism. And so before we look at what Paul has to say about legalism this morning, I want to give you seven signs that would indicate that you are drinking the deadly poison of legalism. Seven signs that would indicate that you're drinking in the deadly poison of legalism. Sign number one, you live your life as if God accepts you because you live according to a certain moral standard. And that could be anything. It could be don't drink, don't do drugs, dress a certain way, act a certain way. Sign number two, when you sin badly, you think God's acceptance diminishes and you need to regain that acceptance by your obedience. Sign number three, when you compare yourself to other people, you either feel really good or really bad. That is, you either feel self-righteously uh, um, superior or uh, jealously inferior. Sign number four, you think your Bible reading, prayer life, labors in ministry, church attendance, evangelistic activities, and on and on, contribute in any way to the increasing or the decreasing of God's acceptance. Sign number five, you would be embarrassed if repentant, and I emphasize that word, but struggling homosexuals, drug addicts, and alcoholics were members of your church. Sign number six, parents, you teach your kids that God works like Santa Claus. Be good, and you'll get the gift of God's acceptance. And sign number seven, students and adults, you endure an hour and 15 minute long church service and think that things are good between you and God because of that. And so all of these seven signs point to legalism because they all imply that the basis of God's acceptance is your performance rather than Christ's perfect performance. And so here's what God wants us to know about legalism. In verse six, God wants us to see that legalism deserts Christ personally. Legalism deserts Christ personally. Verse 6, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Look at the passion here. Paul says that he is astonished. This is a, a mixture of surprise and anger, but it's an anger that's not motivated by pride. It's an anger that's motivated by love. So it's, it's like this. It's like the love of a father who is angered and cries out when he sees his daughter being lured into sex slavery. You see, anger, love compels him to anger because he wants freedom and life for his daughter, not enslavement and destruction that will come with sex slavery. And so Paul's motive is the same. He wants freedom and life for the Galatians, not the enslavement and destruction that comes with legalism. See, legalism, it's, it's so deceiving. Christian legalism is so deceiving, at least, because Christ 
still occupies a place in this perverted system of salvation. Christ is in the lingo. Christ's commands are often the ones that are being obeyed in order to try to earn God's acceptance. And so the Christian legalist actually thinks he has Christ. But Paul says otherwise. He says, relying on your performance means you have deserted Christ personally. You have abandoned Him personally. He says, you're deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. It's like a dead man that's floating face down in a lake. A boater comes by. He jumps in the lake. He drags the man's limp body onto his boat. He begins to form, uh, perform CPR on the man and revives him to life. The man is saved by the grace of the boater. But then when the man regains consciousness, instead of resting in the boat and being profusely thankful for the boater for his grace of saving him, he jumps out of the boat and tries to swim to the shoreline in an attempt to save himself, to play a role in his salvation. You see, that's what, that's what Christian legalism does. It deserts the Savior for another Savior. And that other Savior is me. Legalism's poisonous. In verse 7, God wants to see that legalism is not the gospel. He says, not that there is another one that is gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So a common analogy that some misguided people give is that all world religions are just different paths to the same God. And so they imagine God being at the top of the mountain and, and Hinduism and Buddhism and Christianity and Islam and on and on and on are just different paths that are all going to end up at the same God. Well, we know that Jesus blew that analogy out of the water when he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But what Paul is saying in verse 7 is that Christian legalism and the gospel are also not two different paths to the same God. You see, these are two completely different systems of salvation. The gospel is that it is salvation by grace alone. Legalism is that it is salvation by works, at least in some measure. The gospel is that you are acceptable to God on the basis of Christ's righteousness. Legalism is that you are acceptable to God on the basis of your own righteousness. The gospel, the gospel is that your performance is not even in the equation in regard to your acceptableness before God. Legalism is, is that, that your performance actually contributes towards your acceptableness. And so these are two completely opposing systems of salvation. And even if faith in Christ is added to legalism, they're still in opposition to one another. See, that's what the Judaizers were trying to do. They were saying, yes, you have to believe in Christ, but you also have to do all of these other things. But Paul says, no, this is not the gospel. This is a distortion of it. This is poisonous. I love the, the, the illustration that Pastor Jeff gives. I don't know if he's ever given it in a sermon or not, but he said, imagine just a, a bowl of pure water. He said, all it takes is one drop of cyanide to contaminate the whole thing. And see, that's what happens whenever our, any work on our part is added to the pure gospel of salvation by grace alone. It is contaminated and it is poisonous. Pastor Tim Keller puts it like this. Christ will do everything for you or nothing. He is either all of your righteousness or none. Lastly, in verses 8 and 9, we see that legalism brings condemnation. Legalism brings condemnation. Verse 8, but even if we... For an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. 
As we have said before, so now I say it again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. See, Paul is so certain about the gospel that he preached to the Galatians, either on his first or second missionary journey, is the one and only gospel that he is willing to pronounce a curse from God on anyone who would try to contradict it. He's saying, look, beloved, I'm so certain of the, of the gospel of salvation by grace alone that if I ever alter it in the future, I'm willing to be cursed forever myself. He said, I, in fact, I'm so certain of it that even if an angel comes from the abode of God in heaven and tries to contradict it, I am willing to call down a curse and say he is cursed from God. See, to alter God's message is curse-worthy because it is cosmic slander, cosmic libel, and cosmic treason rolled up all into one package. But there's another reason. And now that other reason is because legalism itself brings condemnation. Legalism brings condemnation both in this life and in eternity. And so let me explain what I mean by that. Remember that legalism pursues God's acceptance through human performance, moral effort, religious activity. Everything's okay when you're living up to your standard. But the moment you slip, the moment you sin, the moment you fail to keep up with your Bible reading or your prayers or whatever it is that your standard is, all of a sudden condemnation comes. That nagging, aching, dreadful feeling of guilt comes. And along with it comes fear and anxiety and insecurity because you're not sure of your standing with God. Why? Because you think that the basis of your salvation is your performance. And if your performance is shaky, then your relationship with God is shaky. And so that's how Legalism brings condemnation in this life. But how does it bring condemnation in eternity? Well, let me see if I can illustrate it this way. Have you ever seen that show on television, The Antique Road Show? It's where people who have some antique or heirloom that's been passed down from generation to generation that they think has value, uh, they take it to the Antique Road Show and, and an appraiser that's there at the road show They'll tell them all about the origins of it, about where it came from, the history of it. And the big dramatic part of the show is where the appraiser tells them the value of it. See, the legalist is like that. He thinks his performance and religious efforts have value. And so what he says is he says, God, the reason you should let me into heaven is because of all these things I've done. But to his, to his surprise, God, the appraiser, says, these are not assets. These are liabilities. These sin-stained works further condemn you. As Jesus said, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. See, that's how legalism brings condemnation in eternity. But that's not what someone who's trusting in the gospel of salvation by grace alone does. He brings nothing before God because he knows he has nothing to bring before God. Rather, he says, God, the reason that you just let me into heaven is because of Jesus. He satisfied my death sentence for me 2,000 years ago, and you gave me his perfect righteousness as a gift. And so as we close today, I want to ask you, have you been drinking in the deadly poison of legalism? Have you been relying on your moral efforts, your goodness, your religious activities in any way to try to, in an attempt to try to gain God's acceptance? If you have, if that is you and you said yes, with all of the love and compassion in my heart and care for your soul, I want to urge you and beg you to abandon that deadly, poisonous system of salvation and to embrace the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You see, the, the door of mercy is open right in this moment. 
but it's not promised to be open within the next hour. You know that death seizes about 151,000 people unexpectedly every single day. And that could be you and that could be me today. And so I urge you to repent and trust in Christ while there is still time. Now, for those of you who are here today that, yes, you've been trusting in, in the pure gospel, but maybe today you've been sensing a little bit that I've been seeing myself drifting into legalism a little bit. I just want to hold out a dangling carrot for you today. And that dangling carrot is to show you uh, what legalism brings, slavery, and what the gospel brings, which is freedom. You see, legalism will enslave you to fear and anxiety and insecurity because you never know if you're performing well enough. But the gospel frees you to live in confidence and assurance that things are right between you and God because you're not looking to your own unstable performance, but to Christ's perfect performance on your behalf. Legalism will enslave you to obey God in a burdensome attempt to gain His acceptance, whereas the gospel frees you to obey God out of love and out of gratitude because of His sheer grace shown to you by pardoning your sins and gifting you a perfect righteousness in, by faith in Christ. Legalism will enslave you to, in, to use people in an attempt to feel worthy, whether that is to look down on others in judgmentalism or that is to try to seek the praise of others by trying to impress them. But the gospel frees you to love people, not because of anything that you can gain from them, but simply because you want to do what is best for them. And that's regardless of how sinful they are and regardless of, of how they respond to you. And the reason you can do that is because you find your worth in Christ. And lastly, legalism enslaves you to an end that is eternal hell. But the gospel frees you to a beginning that is eternal life, where you're dwelling in the very presence of God in the new heaven and the new earth, where all that sin has damaged is restored, where there is no more cancer or pain or accidents or grief or death. And so as we close today, as so many people in this world are going to be celebrating this coming up Wednesday, Halloween, let us be a peculiar people who celebrate what God did through one hammer striking one nail in the hand of Martin Luther almost 502 years ago. will be 502 years ago at that time. Let us praise him profusely for bringing that gospel that we get to enjoy today out of the darkness and into the light to shine with clarity once again. That gospel that is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and for the glory of God alone. Cling to the gospel of salvation by grace alone. Because legalism is a deadly poison. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you blow away the fog. You give us truth. And it's, and it's good for our souls. I pray, Lord, that if there is any here today who has been trusting in their own performance in any manner, in any way, any religious activity, any moral effort, any act of goodness that they thought that they had on their own, that they would abandon that, God, by your grace, by your Spirit's work, and they would embrace Christ for the first time today. I pray for my brothers and sisters as well as myself. If they've identified in any way in which they've been drifting away from the gospel a little bit today into legalism, I pray for the grace they need, Lord, to be able to abandon that and to run back to the gospel of salvation by grace alone. We thank you for your word this morning. In Christ's name, amen.